0: Take your Bibles, and for many months, we've been in the book of 1 Peter, but now we're going to flip back to the book of 1 Kings. You have 1 and 2 Samuel, and then we'll go into 1 Kings, and for this fall season, which I know summer doesn't officially end until for a couple more days or weeks here in September, but for this fall season, we're going to be in the Elijah Elisha narratives of 1st and 2nd Kings. In a season I'm entitling mercy and power for such days. The ministry of the prophets in the Old Testament were one of mercy, often a severe mercy to call God's people back to covenant faithfulness. But it was also one of demonstrative power. Um, and We'll see this along the way. But what was most needed in such days as those and is what is needed in such days as these was the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came through the prophets to a people who needed to be called back to faithfulness. And in these days of progressing evil, we need the word of the Lord to call us to repentance and faith and obedience to our God. And I pray that even as we now turn to the Old Testament, um, I pray that our hearts this season would grow in greater love for the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the scriptures speak to Christ. The Old Testament points us to Christ. The New Testament reveals Christ to us as Jesus of Nazareth. So even though we are now in the Old Testament for a season, let our hearts burn within us as we see even the revelation of Christ there if your Bibles is turned to 1 Kings chapter 16, we'll look at verse 25 and then jump down to another paragraph to finish out this chapter. And then we will turn the corner into chapter 17. And because we're doing more away from a letter and more to a narrative, we're going to look at this along the way. Instead of reading this entire passage, we're going to look and kind of progress with this. And in this, we're going to see the progression of evil today. We're going to see the power of prayer, and then we're going to see the provision of God. The progression of evil, the power of prayer, and the provision of God here into this time. There's so much history. We are just parachuting into the middle of a book of 1 Kings. And this is the history of Israel, the story of God's people. And we're just jumping in, and there's so much you could learn and study on your own as you kind of come alongside us in this. But just to set the scene a bit, we were the united monarchy of where Saul was anointed king of Israel. They wanted a king just like all the other nations and God gave them what they wanted and he called Saul. And Saul, it looked like it was going to start well, but he didn't. And so he, the Lord anointed David, the beloved of the Lord. And then David would have a son, Solomon, And this was the united monarchy, but then after Solomon, because of sin, things start to fracture. And we are now no longer a united monarchy, but we are a divided kingdom. And Israel in the north is comprised of ten tribes. Judah in the south is two tribes. They each have their line of kings. And Israel's kings, all, all, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Judah's kings, some were faithful to God. Hezekiah, Josiah. But many did evil in the sight of the Lord. So with many doing evil in the sight of the Lord, the Lord sent prophets to speak to the kings and to the people to call them back to covenant faithfulness. And they didn't so God finally judged Israel by the brutal Assyrians in 722 B.C. God would finally judge Judah, the southern kingdom, in 586 by the Babylonians. So today we come to the history in 1 Kings 16 and 17. And look with me at verse 25. I know we're parachuting in. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. We are now in the northern kingdom. And I've already told you they're all going to be bad up here. Omri is now the sixth king in the line of the kings of the northern kingdom. And really all the Bible tells us that he did is that he lived he reigned he bought some land he established a new capital Samaria on a good it was geographically good militarily and then he died that's all the bible records of this man's life he lived he reigned he bought some land and he died and in the end isn't this is even our life where it just can be summed up in a few paragraphs? At least that's what we do. How will your obituary be written? How do you summarize a life? I just forwarded to, to Lee an obituary of a dear woman who of a few in this congregation known, Laura Norwood, who served with Child Evangelist Fellowship. I and mean, She just died a few weeks ago, 100 years old. The gift of singleness her entire life and served this valley's youth and children in the schools um, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to see the picture of her obituary, you see, you see the joy of the Lord in her. You see there's an indwelling spirit. But what will be said of you at the end of your life? Will it just be the listing of family? Will it just be the, your work in education? Maybe a few interests. One of the most grievous things that I see are obituaries that have no mention of the Lord. It it saddens my heart to read obituaries where this is the life lived, but it's now no longer being lived. And there's no mention of the Lord. What was most remembered about Omri's life? He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. More evil than all who were before him. And for how many who live here on earth will this end up being the summary of their life? In their life, they forsake God. And now, in the righteous judgment of God, they have a God-forsaken condemnation in hell. Come down to verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. The Bible is going to speak more to Ahab. We're going to learn more of his life and see more of his interactions. He is the son of Amri, which now makes him the seventh king in the line of the northern kingdom. He reigned 22 years from about 874 to 852 B.C. Just to place that so 874, always think about like David being about a thousand. David being a thousand, and now we're moving forward to the 800s. So in the middle 800s, here's Ahab in the northern kingdom. What does the Bible summarize about Ahab's life and reign? Verse 31, he treated sin as trivial, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of his predecessors. Would the Holy Spirit grant us conviction? Are there sins in our life that we are treating as light things? I'm not as sinful as that person. I don't do that. But we treat our sin as a light thing, as a trivial thing. Do we make excuses for our sin? Do we even love certain sin? We have all sinned. All fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, eternal judgment, apart from God's saving grace. How is sin being treated as trivial in our day, as if it had been a light thing? The illustrations could take the rest of the sermon. Conformity culture that we now live in means that there's no voices of dissent, no voices of disagreement. This leads now to a cancel culture where we are murdering people and their reputations and their livelihoods. It's a light thing. We are murdering people's reputations and their livelihoods, and it's a light thing. Verses 30 and 33 also say this about Ahab. He did more evil than all who were before him. Well, that's what was said about his his dad, Omri. He did more evil. So what are we doing here? We're progressing in evil. How is evil progressing in our day? Once again, the illustrations could take the rest of the sermon. 2015, the Supreme Court decision made same-sex marriage a right. July of this year in Somerville, Massachusetts, adopt, adopted a domestic partnership policy to include polyamorous relationships, three or more. BLM believes that disrupting the West-prescribed nuclear family structure is a worthy aim. We are progressing in evil to destroy the good gift of family and marriage. The church, the church... Let's look at the log in our own eyes. According to a Pew study that came out this week. How about the question, do you think that um, intimate relations, intimate relations between unmarried adults, but are in a committed relationship, consensual committed, what do you think about that? 57, the majority of US Christians say that this is sometimes or always acceptable. Then we're surprised that the world is progressing in evil when we are becoming so worldly. The dogmatic religious secularism of our day, moving from canceling people to conforming others to now controlling with acceptable violence. Oh Lord, Psalm 94. Oh, Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers evil boast. And you're just saying, Derek, I wish 2020 hadn't happened. I mean, you just wish 2020 hadn't happened. Like, if we had just not turned the calendar into this year, I just wish 2020 hadn't happened. but do all, this is what all say when they live in such times. So do all who live to see such times. That's not for us to decide. Our times are in his hands. So all we have to decide is to do what to do with the time that's given to us. But Derek, I'm going to call foul. That's the Lord of the Rings reference here. Well, if you've been paying attention, I've had, I'm now on a uh, six week in a row streak. I've been embedding those into the sermons these last weeks, whether you knew it or not. I just wish 2020 hadn't happened. So do all who live to see such times. That's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is to do with the time that is given to us. So we cry out to the Lord, but in the history of 1 Kings 12 through 16, we see again in this history that it's his story. God is Lord over all. All of history, even the progressing evil of that day, it will not make a mockery of God. Instead, God will even work in that to bring about his eternal purposes for his glory according to his will by his word. Do you think that this is unraveling? David's house is gonna stand firm even as God's judgment falls upon Solomon. But Nathan told him that in 2 Samuel 7. Jeroboam's house is destroyed, just as Ahijah had predicted in 1 Kings 14. For a little bit longer, Judah's going to know political stability, even as the prophets had prophesied, 2 Samuel 7, 1 Kings 11. Israel's royal house will come and go as the prophets announced their doom in 1 Kings fourteen, sixteen, History is not unraveling. We are progressing in evil, but God is still God and Lord over all. And God's word is true, and whatever God wills comes to pass. This is in the short term, and then this is in the long term. Look at the last verse there, 1 Kings 16. In his days... Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. What's significant about that detail? Remember, we already marched around Jericho and it fell down. And in Joshua 26, 6, Joshua prophesied, "Cursed be the Lord! Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates." That city wasn't supposed to be rebuilt, but in the progressing evil of Ahab's day, this guy Hiel wanted to build it up, and it cost him his sons. God's word is true. Whatever God wills comes to pass. And evil is progressing in this world apart from God's restraining and saving grace. In the United States, we have known God's common grace for much of our history. A common grace of peace and prosperity so much so that the world has looked to us, the world has wanted to come to us. We've had civil war in our land. We've had civil rights movements in our land. But even that strife has united us in vision and values. But the past decades, the, world, the church has become more worldly, and the culture has become more secular, and we're living in a Romans 1 moment. Although we know God, we've not honored Him as God and given thanks to Him so we've become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are becoming darkened. Therefore, God is giving us up to the lust of our hearts, to dishonorable passions and to debased minds. We are living Romans 1. And so our culture is being filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of evil, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. More and more are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithful, heartless, ruthless. We're living this day in a progressing evil. And God is still God. And what God has said will come to pass. So even in these days, God's Purposes are working together for God's glory according to God's will, by His word. What was it in Ahab's days in the progressing evil? The word of the Lord. See he's going to, have to deal with Elijah on the scene. What is needed in our day of progressing evil? It's so the same, we need the word of God to confront us again. Elijah is going to speak judgment of evil through the prophet. the Lord's going to speak judgment of evil through the prophet Elijah. And God's word is going to speak to us and call us to repentance and obedience again. And in progressing evil God is going to act in such a way to both bring judgment to the world severe mercy, and that severe mercy on the church is going to be discipline. It's because he loves us. Because he loves us. A loving father will discipline his children. Do you know what Barna said this past week? I'm like, it's, every week, like the illustrations, I don't have to dig for anything. Everything's like, Barna said this week that one in five churches may permanently close in the next 18 months as a result of the shutdowns. 20%. In the face of progressing evil, what we need most is the word of God. Come with me to chapter 17. Verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. We not only parachuted into this historical narrative This historical narrative is pretty abrupt in itself. We don't get a a nice introduction to to Elijah. We don't get his backstory. All of a sudden we found him and he's just speaking a word straight to Ahab after we've learned of Ahab's progressing evil. Elijah is introduced without any information about his prior life, without any reference to his family or his clan in Israel. We see no elaborate pedigree which we could place him in the social registry of ancient Israel. He lived in Gilead, a peripheral area in ancient Israel, but itself was isolated across the Jordan. He had no fame, no notoriety, no particular political clout, no credentials to command a hearing, no alphabet soup of academic degrees that followed his name. He just shows up and starts speaking to an evil king. Who else comes on the scene like this? We know a little bit more. but who else was the one who had no majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him? Who was the other one whose pedigree was questioned? Who is it? A carpenter's son? Who is this? Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" said Nathaniel. Jesus comes abruptly into the historical narrative with God's word. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Records Mark with Peter's apostolic endorsement. What qualifies you to minister God's word in God's name? What qualifies you? What, what makes you able to do this? Qualified to do this? And please, let's put away that anything that it thinks it's some worldly standards to gain us. A, it's always God's calling. The Corinthians—they were playing; they were just playing pick 'em. Like, who's your favorite apostle? Who's your favorite leader? And we're doing a cult of personality in Corinth. And Paul comes to them, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. All that's important for us to know about Elijah, ultimately, is that God sent him and that God empowered him. Elijah believes God, the Lord, the God of Israel who lives, he's going to declare, and he serves God, Yahweh, instead of the Baals. He didn't just go along to get along, but the call of God called him to go against and counterculture. And he abruptly arrives and announces God's judgment to Ahab. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. We make do, we figure it out in a world economy when we hit drought. At least we do in this land. It hits harder in other lands. Think about how you get food. How are you going to get food even in this day? Some of you are just going to pull out your phone and open an app. Think of this. You're going to then scroll through, click a few things, and then like get a time, and then like you're going to get in your car, combustible engine, and drive somewhere, sit in a parking lot, tell them you're there, and they're going to come out and bring it to you, probably just put it in your car. Do you really what else what day we're living in? What would they say if they saw that? Because everything in that that day revolved around the agricultural seasons. In the ancient Near East, you had to understand agriculture. And winter was the primary season, the agricultural season. So you would have the heat and the dry of the summer, but then would come their early autumn rains. And if the rains didn't come, the ground would harden, you couldn't plow it. The wells and the springs would dry up. The later spring rains would give the crops the moisture needed to develop and flourish. But if the rains did not come, the harvest was destroyed. So to declare no rain was going to change life for everyone. Also, this narrative is set in the region around the plain of Jezreel. So each morning from fall to spring in this valley, there was a coating of dew so heavy that even if it didn't rain, agriculture could still be possible just from the dew. So what does Elijah declare? There'll be no rain or dew. This is also the area where Gideon would take his fleece, you know? All right, all right, Lord, if you're going to do this, make it wet this day. No, no, no make it dry. And just in Judges chapter 6, This is where that region is with that amount of dew. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust, and he can also withhold it. How was this drought enacted by Elijah? 1 Kings 16 doesn't tell us, it's just proclamation of his word. But how was this drought enacted? And there, later in our Bibles, in the book of James, we read, James chapter 5, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it may not rain, and for three years and six months, It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Three and a half years, half of seven. I won't even go down that road of that symbolism. God's will comes by God's word, and there's power in prayer when we pray according to God's will, according to his word. There is power in prayer when we pray for God's will according to God's word. What is prayer? Elijah gives us the example of praying God's will according to God's word in faith. Back up one more verse in 16, it says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That begs some questions of us. Is our prayer powerful? Well, this verse says the prayer of a righteous person. Well, then that begs another question. Are you a righteous person? How do you know? Are you a righteous person? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So then the question becomes, are we righteous people? Are you a righteous person? What makes a person righteous? Is it by doing enough good works that you hit a threshold of righteousness? Is there a depth of sincerity in our heart of being good enough that we hit the threshold of righteousness? The example of Abraham, as recorded in Romans, Galatians, and James is this, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. Believe God and you'll be counted righteous, the Scriptures say. The prophet Habakkuk also repeated in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous person is the one who believes God and lives by faith. Are you righteous? None of us is righteous. No, not one. On our own, in our own birth nature, which is sin. We are all unrighteous before God, and we are all progressing in evil apart from God's saving grace. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, God made Christ, made him, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. Are you righteous? Well, I want to have powerful prayers. I got to be righteous. Well, my question is, are you righteous? How we get to the answer of how we are righteous decides on whether we think we're going to pray powerfully or not. If we, I'm good enough, I do good, good works, I'll try my. Empty prayers. Our prayer is like, God, I am unrighteous. And He says, I have loved you. And in the great exchange, we who are sin, unrighteousness and deserve the the judgment of God, Christ comes in our place and bears that sin upon himself so that we might become the righteousness of God. So those who have faith in Christ Jesus are righteous. This is not a righteousness of our own that comes through good works or religion But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, Philippians 3.9. Are you a righteous person ultimately has to be answered with, do you believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation? Elijah did not know Jesus, but he had faith in God and that God was preparing the way for a Christ to come. Elijah was righteous, believing in the Lord God, powerfully praying according to God's word. What was significant about declaring a drought in the land? What had Ahab just done? Oh, my daddy just, he he bought the hill Samaria. We got a new capital. Let's now build some temples here to Baal on it. So he's worshiping Baal. But who is Baal? He is the storm God of Canaanite mythology. He's the in the pantheon of all the Canaanite gods. Baal was the chief, the most prominent. But he was the storm god who brought fertility by releasing the rains or withholding the rains. And so religion was always trying to appease Baal so that we would have rains, so that we would have an economy. And Elijah says, "They're not going to be any more rain or dew. By my word. So what was Elijah actually doing there? He was declaring war. The great contrast between Yahweh and Baal is now set and we will soon discover which God lives. Ahab, Jezebel and all their minions, the false prophets, were serving Baal, the storm god, to ensure the fertility of the land. But now Elijah comes who serves Yahweh, the Lord God, the God of Israel. And by declaring a drought, he is declaring war and showing that the God of Israel is the God who lives, not Baal. Now for the rest of this chapter, next week and maybe another week, we're going to live in the effects of this drought for the rest of chapter 17. But this this. War is gonna hit climax in chapter 18, there upon Mount Carmel. We're gonna see which God is real there on Mount Carmel in chapter 18. Prayer is worship unto God and warfare against enemies. What are the enemies of our day in our land? In Elijah's day, it was a mythology around agriculture. It was false worship around the agricultural season. So you would orient your life so that agriculture would sustain the economy. And if it meant you were bowing down to false gods, you would do that because you're you're begging the clouds to rain for your livelihood. What are the enemies in our day? It's not a mythology around agriculture, but I do think it's ideologies around culture that we are bending and contorting our wills to so that everything just goes right. These are the ideologies of our day, critical race theory, intersectionality. They run counter to biblical anthropology. They don't teach of the else being created in the image of God. Teach us that there's a unity of the human race. They do not teach that we are sinful by nature, all of us, and and deserving of God's judgment. Instead, we are being tribalized into different groups and pockets against one another. And there's new identity politics into a new secular religion. And try to appease it, but there's no atonement for sin in these ideologies of our day. There's no, actually, we'd speak of it, but there's no true justice. There's no reconciliation to God. There's just increasing division and hatred. Now we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every... Thought captive to obey Christ. Please do not reduce this to a cultural war. That's actually part of the, the scheme of the enemy to, to get you drawn in. Let's get our eyes up to see that there's bigger enemies in our land. It's not merely just for culture. It's for truth. Prayer is spiritual warfare. Oh, but Elijah, you know... He didn't even die. He just went up in chariots of fire. And then later he would drop down and be with Jesus on the Mount of transfiguration. You can't. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. James five seventeen. If the scriptures, if we are in Christ and we are declared righteous, the scriptures say the prayers of a righteous person are powerful. Are our prayers powerful? And if not, why not? First of all, are we praying? And if we are praying, are we praying for God's glory? Are we just praying, God, this is uncomfortable and everything seems out of whack? Are we just praying for our comforts? God, glorify yourself. Whatever I have to live through and do, glorify yourself. Isn't that how Jesus prayed? Not my will, but your will be done? Are we repenting of sin or are we treating sin as light and trivial? Are we praying for the salvation of souls, even by name? Or do we just want God to fix circumstances for us and others? Are we praying for church revival? Or are we praying to just get back to the normal? There is power in prayer when we pray for God's will according to God's word. Verses two and three. Four. The word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, to part from here, Turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook, brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. <sighs> Elijah is going to be called into battle to go and declare the word. Then he always has the places to retreat from. This one, he's commanded to leave and go back. He's going to be provided for. After Mount Carmel, when he, provide, he, he runs off and goes up, Broom tree, like Lord, just I just want to die. I love this man because he wants there's a boldness to go confront, but then there's like, Lord, you gotta please help. Despair, anxiety, but yet the Lord is always meeting him, providing him, caring for him. Elijah has declared the word of the Lord, a word of judgment to evil King Ahab, but now the word of the Lord comes to Elijah himself, and it's a word of leading and provision. Elijah is now embodying what Israel was supposed to be, devoted to the Lord, serving Him alone. God does not abandon His prophet. Just as God provided for Israel under Moses with food and drink in the wilderness, so now He provides for His faithful servant. It won't be manna like it was then. It's going to now be birds doing food delivery. The ravens. The Lord, is, His ways are not our ways, but He's always good. The Lord, who knows the fail of every single sparrow, also commands the ravens. When Israel was wandering in the wilderness, God, it says in Deuteronomy 30, 32, was like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on His pinions. Now the birds even do his bidding to care for Elijah as he is hid in the shadow of his wings. Go pray pray a powerful prayer with Rosemary sometime. Rosemary's always praying that Lord keep us close to your heart under the shadow of your wings. Always this bird imagery. Always in her closing remarks. Does this not encourage your hearts? God, there's evil progressing in our day. I know, and you have... God's word, you need to speak and declare it. But God, it's going to, and I'm going to care for you and lead you. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 12, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his or her span of life? Your Father knows what you need. Instead, seek first His kingdom. And these things will be added to you. In the face of progressing evil, what we need most It's not just things to go back to normal or not just things to get fixed. What we need most is the word of the Lord to speak to us. And the word of God reminds us that God leads us and cares for us. Verse five. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Elijah, just don't miss this, Elijah obeyed God's word. And God fulfilled his word. God's will will come to pass whatever he decrees. God's word. As we are in him, God's word has no power in our life apart from obedience. Think of this time, he's now at the brook. The ravens are bringing him food and drink. But the crops are beginning to fail. The rivers, the streams, the wells are now drying up. And many are beginning to suffer. Don't miss this. This is going to be three and a half years. And just as a father disciplines his children, so God disciplines his people. He didn't abandon them, but it's a severe mercy. It wasn't a quick fix. This is going to be three and a half years. and They're not even going to get this. They're going to go into exile generations later. Discipline is a severe mercy, but it's a mercy nonetheless. Later on, we're going to sing his mercy is more. I want you to receive that. Sometimes his mercy is severe, but it's always for our good, for his glory. Verse 7, after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. There would come a time when there'd be no rain there. How will the Lord lead? Eventually there would come one who would open up a well for us that would never run dry. Who would give us a drink that we would never be thirsty again. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will come in him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. He cares for you. That's how we cast all of our anxieties upon him, we learned in 1 Peter. He cares for us. It's a severe mercy sometimes, but he cares for us. He's leading us. There's more happening than we can see in the moment, and that is true in these days. I don't know what the coming days and the weeks and months. I'm not a prophet in that regard. But we can see the signs and the the times that we now live in. And I don't think it's going to be a quick return to normal. There just may be a more severe mercy that we keep living into. But in this, please don't doubt the Lord's love of you. What has he withheld from you? He's given us his beloved son. So that these light momentary afflictions... Nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory prepared for us. And so if we suffer in this life, what we learned in 1 Peter is we suffer and this is the way unto glory. We shouldn't be surprised by fiery trials. God is always working His purposes for His glory and His ways are not our ways. That was a day of progressing evil. We live in a day of progressing evil. If you don't see that, open your eyes. We need God's word. In the face of progressing evil, we must pray. Not just listing out a few things like, Lord, please take care of that. You remember this, spiritual warfare, declaring war against the enemies of the land. And in the face of progressing evil, I want you to know this. God knows you, he's caring for you. He loves us. This is perfect in Christ. Nothing can separate us from his love. Let's pray.